Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, here for a solo episode. This episode is going to be about Diocletian's Edict on Maximum Prices, which is one of the most cited, possibly the only cited <laughs> ancient law that economists ever talk about. It's a big subject for economic historians, which are, of course, uh, different from regular historians in that uh, they're dumbasses. And we'll we'll see that later on. So Diocletian's Edict uh, was in it's a law from 301 in the Roman Empire by Emperor Diocletian that set maximum legal prices on over a thousand goods and on um, they set floors on uh, different types of labor. I don't remember if it's maximums or minimums for that, but minimum makes more sense. Um, it's probably the favorite example of the business wing of economics as opposed to the government or whole state wing of economics uh, for why it's feudal to uh, and naive to try to institute price controls. So according to them, the effect of the edict was to cause runaway inflation and all that stuff that they say will happen if you uh, institute rent control or any shit like that. So if you're talking about solutions to, you know, housing crises and you say, hey, maybe we should put uh, rent control on, like, you know, national rent control, uh, you'll probably get at least one guy, you know, if enough people see your post, you'll get at least one guy who says, oh, Diocletian tried that in 300 and look what happened. But just ask him to show you a source on, you know, like a first-hand source on what happened. Uh, they won't be able to do it. So I'm not a historian. I'm not a history major. I didn't pay attention to history very much in high school, but I'm going to try and give some historical background on the Roman Empire at this point. So, Augustus, which is a title for emperor, Augustus Carus was emperor from 282 to 283, and he waged a campaign against the Zoroastrian Sassanids, which was successful in sacking Mesopotamia and making it as far as what is now Baghdad. Unfortunately, Jupiter hated him because he was killed by a lightning strike after doing this so he was succeeded by his fail son Carinus or Carinus I don't know how to pronounce it because I've only read this stuff who was more interested in having a harem than a job and was killed by either a tribune which is like a you know a Paul Wall a people's champ hired by his wife his actual wife <laughs> not any of his concubines or killed by his own troops. That's a historical debate that has not been settled. The Roman Empire had grown pretty large by the late 200s. Diocletian became Augustus, and Diocletian was kind of like Toyotomi Hideyoshi in that he started off as someone lowborn and climbed his way up to becoming the ruler of the country. So he he went through the military and eventually became like a high-level officer. And then when Carinus was killed, there was a conflict over succession and he basically took control of Rome. Um, so when Diocletian became Augustus, he created a, a new level of hierarchy beneath him in order to manage the Roman Empire, which had grown uh, quite larger uh, by that time. So there was an associate Augustus and two Caesars were assistants. I, <laughs> I think this shit is so funny that they call everyone Augustus and Caesar. Just imagining like, you know, in the, the ruins of the American Empire in 50 years, everyone's called, like, a Donald or a Trump. <laughs> It'd be really funny. Um, 
you know, a Barack or an Obama. <laughs> That'd be great. So the Roman Empire was essentially divided into four parts with their own capitals and armies. And they, uh, you know, they were managed by the Caesars and the associate Augustus and, and Diocletian himself. Um, so, again, I'm not a historian. So take some of the stuff with a grain of salt because I could be wrong. I had to fill in some of the stuff with, you know, my own knowledge, which is not historical, it's political or economic. I just want to talk about how the Roman political economy works a little bit. So the problem with a lot of these papers is that they basically like project how our world works today backwards into history. Uh, so they kind of, they, they seem to assume that all workers were wage workers and that they like, you know, went to the grocery store to get their food and stuff like that. Um, so some of their analysis doesn't make a lot of sense, but in reality, Rome ran on a patronage system. Yes, you heard that right. Roman citizens paid 10 denarius a month to support their favorite gladiators and dramatists and received exclusive premium content from them. No, really, though, uh, the patronage system, from what I understand, basically meant you would um, give political support uh, to someone who was more in the upper class than you, higher up in the upper class, and they would basically provide all of your needs for you you know in exchange for doing whatever work they need you to do so if you're a peasant farmer that work would be growing crops and stuff if you're a footman then you know you're a servant at their manor and you know they give you clothing and food and shelter and all that stuff so most people probably weren't buying things people in the city itself probably more likely but a great many people in the Roman Empire were not in the city of Rome and so weren't necessarily affected by prices and most certainly most people were not wage workers because wage workers were usually slaves or soldiers uh, one of those two One thing that none of the papers I've read have really asked or tried to answer is who exactly is the edict for? Because when we think of price controls, we think it's for the poor. We think it would be like, you know, setting price controls on what Walmart can sell. But since most people were not likely buying stuff with wages who who's paying those prices and my thought and again this could be wrong is that it's for like wholesale prices more so and that's the sort of thing that like you know your lord would pay so if you have a patron then the patron would be buying stuff in probably quite a large quantity because they're supporting a bunch of retainers and such and so that's who the price controls are for not not for individual people going down to Roman Walmart to buy their weekly groceries which is what economic historians seem to think is what happened So yeah, I, th I think it's the intent was basically to control the expenses of patricians and not the expenses of plebeians. So I've read a decent number of articles. If you want to read my notes, they'll be in the show description. So the first 
article I'm going to talk about is called The Edict of Diocletian Fixing Maximum Prices. Very creative title. It's a UPenn article from 1920. The author is Roland G. Kent. And for the most part, uh, this article is just a translation of the preamble of the edict. But he also talks a little bit about basically how to convert prices from the edict into dollars. Which, I mean, this is just great. I'll, I'll just read this. After the preamble comes the price lists arranged in schedules. The prices are fixed in the denarius, no longer a silver coin, but one of copper, the value of which it, at the time of Diocletian was established by the discovery of a fragment of the edict in which a pri the price of one Roman pound of refined gold was set at 50,000 denarii. The copper denarius was therefore worth 0.434 cents. So if you didn't catch what they did there, they took the 1920 average price of gold in dollars, and then they divided that by 50,000, and then that is the conversion of a denarius to a dollar. So basically this is based on the brain worm that almost everyone who studies economics or political economy have, which is that money is just an evolution of gold, which uh, is an evolution of barter. And prices are basically all objectively discovered. They're, they're discovered by people who operate in markets. And so if you want to convert prices in one currency to another, all you have to do is convert it to gold and back because all a currency is really just gold or claims on gold or, or what have you. This is what, like, every classical political economist, every neoclassical economist, and even Marx himself believed, which is just that, that all prices are really gold-based, and prices are all, you know, in fixed proportion to one another between different currencies. And so, like, a pair of shoes and francs is you know, three times the price of a hot dinner. And so in in Japan, a uh, pair of shoes should also be three times the price of a hot dinner. <laughs> and if you just convert francs into yen or into gold and then gold back into yen, then you can, you can just translate the prices that way. That's, that's sort of what they think. So this is what they did here. They converted the price of gold in denarii to dollars by just dividing you know gold by the number of denarius and then multiplying that by the price of gold so let's just do a, a quick check on how this works out for uh, modern prices um, some of it makes sense like a head of cabbage under the edict using modern gold prices per you know for US dollars a head of cabbage is like 80 cents sure okay let's look at something else though the the cheapest grain in Rome was uh, oats and a bushel of oats in Rome was 30 denarius per modius which figures out to about 125 denarius per bushel um, and a bushel of oats in US dollars the, the actual price is $2.80 the conversion is fifty ninety four. so it's off by about 25 times <laughs> I guess more, more like 20 but still um, way fucking off not even close to the actual price because prices are changing constantly in relative proportion to each other because of a whole variety of factors. And 
you can't just convert a pro, uh, like a money into gold and then into a different money and then expect all the prices to work out. But that's what economists think you can do. So, and they they have all this theory to justify the the fact that you can do that. They haven't, you know, proven it with evidence, but it it seems like it's true. So, uh, it probably is. So, other than that, most of the rest of this article is just a translation of the preamble. Like I said. Um, one thing I found very interesting about the preamble is that in the very first paragraph, it refers to the repression of barbarians. So the first passage is to the end that we who are under the gracious favor of the gods have repressed the furious depredations in the past of barbarous tribes by the destructions of those nations themselves may for all time gird with the bulwarks due to justice, the peace, which has been established. So basically, like, they did ethnic cleansing of barbarians so that barbarians would stop raiding them. And so because of that, they need to do price fixing because now they should be prosperous since they're not getting raided anymore. I'm going to talk about this more eventually when I get into Golden Kamui. But as far as I can tell, all pre-modern states... Uh, we're in constant conflict with barbarians. This is kind of what David Graeber and James Scott have said as well. And modern states have mostly or all gone through a period of ethnic cleansing of the local populations of stateless people. And as an example of how obsessed with crushing barbarians states are, in Japan, the title Shogun is short for Sei Taishogun, which translates to Barbarian Conquering General. And it was first bestowed on someone for conquering the Emushi, which are an extinct ethnic group in Honshu, which is the main big island in Japan. Anyway, the rest of the preamble is basically saying, like, um, the reason that Diocletian is fixing prices is because merchants are essentially getting too greedy they should stop being greedy uh, they're hurting others by being so greedy etc etc I actually do like one of the paragraphs from it though which I'll read now therefore we proceed promptly to apply the remedies long demanded by the necessity of the case and that too feeling no concern about complaints that our corrective interference may as coming unseasonably or unnecessarily be considered cheaper or less valuable even in the eyes of the wicked who though seeing in our silence of so many years a lesson in self-restraint nevertheless refuse to follow it i mean i can barely understand the first part but i like that second part about hey we haven't killed you all yet maybe you should learn a lesson <laughs> in self-restraint from that <laughs> So that's all I really have for that um, 1920 article. The next one I have is called How Prosperous Were the Romans? Department of Economics, Oxford University, Robert C. Allen, and it's from 2007. So in this article, Allen is trying to compare the average Roman's level of wealth to people in other times and places. So there's a lot of crazy theory in this. This shows one of the other ways that economists tend to convert currencies. He says, It is interesting to compare the wage rate in the Roman Empire to wages elsewhere. To do that, we must establish an exchange rate between denarii and other currencies. This is an ever-present problem in price history. Since silver was so often the medium of exchange, currencies are usually converted according to their silver equivalents. How much silver was in a denarius at the time of the price edict? I take it to have been 0.032 grams of silver. In that case, the daily wage of a laborer was 1.16 grams of silver. And so he's just going to take the grams of silver 
and convert it to something else according to its silver content. So, yes, I will um, link this in the notes and you can see right near the end on page 13 there is a graph that plots wages in terms of grams of silver per day of workers in different times and places. So that's how they decided to convert it. No real reason to think (laughs) that that would work. Uh, You can go back to I think it was three episodes ago um, the one that I did with Andy Palmer and Steve Jeffries from Grub Stakers about coinage and metalism. And uh, Steve has a good explanation of how money's value is actually established versus most of the rest of the episode, which is how economists think that money's value is established. (laughs) Um, There's quite a divergence there. So I actually posted some excerpts from this article on Twitter, but since I know that not all of you have Twitter alerts set up to see every one of my amazing, impeccable tweets, um, you might have missed this. Alan is laying out different ways to figure out how prosperous the Romans were. And he says there's three approaches to the problem that are particularly direct and encompassing, as he says. The first approach is to calculate the average income. Sure, okay. Um, this equals gross domestic product right right off the bat, just tanking it. <laughs> this equals gross domestic product divided by the population, since GDP equals both the value of total production and the sum of everyone's income. So he's just assuming that everyone gets the same amount of money, basically. That the average is just like, you know, X divided by N. No, no issues with that, I don't think. <laughs> the GDP approach is appealing since it ties income into the production structure and makes explicit the connection between the standard of living and the efficiency of agriculture and manufacturing. No idea what that is supposed to mean. Um, I don't think we need numbers to tell us that the standard of living has to do with industry. I think that's just a fact of how society works. However, there is a corresponding drawback. The GDP approach requires either, one, a great deal of economic information that is either unavailable or not known with much accuracy. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) or two very strong equilibrium assumptions so that the small amount of information we do have can be used to proxy for what we do not know about the economy. In addition, the population must be known to calculate average income, and population estimates are also controversial. Consequently, while GDP calculations help organize what we know about the Roman economy, any calculation of per capita GDP is bound to be problematic. Just in the Roman economy, though. Not, not in any of the other ones. So the second approach that he says that he could use is using skeletal evidence. So he says, The idea is that if people were better nourished during their youth, they would have been taller as adults. If large random samples of skeletons were excavated, average adult height could be determined and standard of living established. Promising research has begun in this area, but it is already creating controversy rather than consensus. There turn out to be serious problems in estimating average height. The prevalence of cremation, the size and representativeness of the samples, inferring height from the length of the femur, and so forth. And there is the further complexity that the correlation between height and income is not exact. So even if we could establish the biological standard of living, we would still not be certain about the economic standard of living. Now, what's funny about this, to me, is that all these statistical and empirical problems that he has just talked about apply 
as much or more so <laughs> to the other methods that he's using. Data about the poor is like less likely to exist and therefore survive. The, you know, someone's income does not really determine their standard of living unless you can compare it with prices, which, according to their thesis, the edict on maximum prices shouldn't even be a good source for what prices would have been because, one, they say that Diocletian didn't have a good idea of what things cost, so he didn't set realistic prices. And two, it didn't even fucking work because it created runaway inflation and couldn't be enforced. So, like, how do they know what the prices are? (laughs) And then, like, inferring larger picture from a small piece of data. The height from length of femur thing. Same exact issue that they have with wages and all that stuff. Like I said, wages were only paid to a small subset of Romans, and it was slaves and soldiers. So, like, knowing the wage doesn't really tell you a whole lot about the standard of living of most Romans. Okay, so in view of these difficulties, this paper proposes a third approach to measuring Roman living standards. Instead of estimating the average income or height of Romans, I study the income of an average Roman, a somewhat different concept. In particular, I study the purchasing power of an unskilled free male laborer. How much could such a person buy with his earnings? There are, of course, difficulties with this method. How representative was a laborer? What if he did not work full-time? What about other people? Nevertheless, this provides us with a new approach to the problem that incorporates information that other approaches do not use. It provides a useful complement to them. Now, I have thought of more or less the same thing, actually. If you want to compare the standard of living of people between different places, you have to pick some sort of representative worker... In the U.S., I usually pick a retail worker and a worker that makes the median income. Uh, th- those are the two I generally look at. And sometimes a minimum wage worker. What I do is I convert the prices and wage into the number of hours that they have to work and then translate that to another time and place because hours is an actual unit money is not really a unit like it is but it only makes sense in the context of the time and place that it exists so a denarius basically unless there's some way that we have to like transform and aggregate every single value into like a single comparison like some matrix method or something like that some higher dimensional math that we don't know about you are inevitably losing information whenever you convert one form of money to another because again money only makes sense in the like relative to the prices and wages that people pay and are paid so Knowing that a Big Mac costs, you know, $2, whatever the fuck it is, doesn't tell you anything because you don't know how much of someone's income that is. If you know that someone makes seven twenty-five an hour, then they can afford 3.125 Big Macs an hour. But if you don't know their income, then... You have no reference point whatsoever for what $2 means. And likewise, if you go back in time to the 1990s, when minimum wage was, you know, five twenty-five or whatever it was, and a Big Mac maybe was like $1.50, 
you need both of those pieces of information in order for either of them to make sense. And you can't just, like, magically transform them into another currency. Except by converting them into a real unit, <laughs> which is ours. So if you know that it takes, what, uh, 18 minutes for a minimum wage worker to be able to afford a Big Mac now, but it t in 1990 it took 15 minutes, then you can, you can get like a, an actual idea of how rich or poor a minimum wage worker was today versus 1990. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, I'm using Big Mac cause that's just what came to my mind, I guess, cause I'm hungry, <laughs> but, and, and because it's, uh, used as an inflation index by economists, but I think a much better thing to use is rent because that is the overwhelming majority of our expenses. So if it takes, you know, 68 hours to afford rent, then that tells you more about what $500 a month means than anything else. And with rent, you can see one of the issues, which is there's a wide range of quality um, and I mean, there's just like a wide range of, of values that you could choose because one, it depends on your location. Two, it depends on how lucky you are. And three, it depends on, like, how good your accommodations are. You could probably pay $300 for rent, but you're most likely going to be, you know, in a row house with, like, eight other people living there. Comparing prices is, is really insanely hard, but it's much easier if you go by hours. And it's just amazing to me that people who are paid to sit around and think about this shit all day... Um, are dumber than me and haven't thought of this yet. Um, you know, I'm I'm just an idiot with a podcast and another full-time job, and I make zero dollars thinking about econ or history or anything academic. But somehow I've come out with a I've come up with a better method to compare wages and prices between times and places than professional fucking economists. That that should tell you what a good science this is. You know. I definitely haven't thought of any, like, new analyses in physics or chemistry <laughs> that people who, have, who are paid to do that stuff haven't thought of, so. So, I'm, I'm gonna, like, read my actual notes on this. That was just me ad-libbing. But, uh, so, basically what he's going to do is going to take consumption baskets, which is what economists do to compare price levels that's what cpi and ppi and stuff like that are they are baskets of goods that are weighted and then aggregated into a single value and then for cpi and ppi and such that value is then set to an index year right now it's i think 2014 sometimes it's 2007 basically depends on what outcome they want um because the index year you choose can like wildly change the result <laughs> which means it's actually not a good method of comparison at all but so they take this consumption basket they weight it they aggregate it and then they set the index year and then they um compare them between different years as a percentage essentially um they do it as like you know the index here is 100 and so um today you know the, if if the index year was 2007 today it would be like you know 105 or 106 or something like that so this is essentially what robert c allen is going to be doing uh but he's going to be doing it for romans and a consumption basket of you know fucking oats and liquamen and tunics and <laughs> shit like that so he's going to yeah do the consumption basket compare income to living costs um and say whether 
a laborer could purchase the specified basket. So he has like a, a set of buckets that he's going to use. And so w- what he's going to come out with is is essentially like, you know, a Roman was 10% wealthier than someone living in Delhi in 1775 or shit like that. But, you know, it, it's really hard to compare different times because of changes in like not only technology but like the shape of society in general one thing that we all know is that you basically can't survive now as a US worker without having at the very least a cell phone and more likely a smartphone uh, because your boss is going to like email you or text you or whatever. You also need to have an address. People at different points in history didn't have addresses or, you know, a permanent residence or anything like that. If you live in American society as a worker, you most likely need a car because public transport is shit and usually you can't just walk to your job that's like a luxury but at other points in history that's not true like in the 1920s there were streetcars that went everywhere in cities and so if you were a worker you wouldn't have a car you would take the streetcar but then you know automobile companies bought all the streetcars and dismantled them so that people had to buy cars at other points in history you wouldn't have to pay medical expenses not necessarily because you didn't need medicine but just because it wasn't available or it wasn't something you paid for like a commodity like like today so the, like the even the consumption basket method isn't like readily comparable between time periods and like we can just see that even between the the u.s in 1980 and the u.s in 2020 that's only four decades apart incomparable consumption baskets today we have internet we have computers a lot of us work from home a lot of us can't walk to our jobs even in the 80s it was probably less necessary to have a car than it is today in the 80s there were like there was like more public space and so in your recreational time you didn't have to pay for something to like entertain yourself in your free time food wasn't as packaged as it is today so like a really good example is uh, bagged salad if you want if you want leafy greens today you really can't buy them in bulk almost anywhere they're always bundled into like some sort of package and usually the amount in that package is more than you could possibly use by the time it goes bad and i think that's intentional because you know the business doesn't care what happens to it after they sell it they only care about selling it to you and if they can get you to pay more because there's more there even though you can't use it all um because you can't pay less than that because all leafy greens are in packages then they'll do that. In this case, we can see a very significant difference. So the author talks about the cost of supporting a family as a Roman. So if you're a Roman and you want to support a family, here's one thing you won't have to pay for that you would have to pay for here, which is daycare. Uh, If If you're a U.S. worker and you work on the weekends or at night, which if you are a poor person, then that is extremely likely because that's when all bosses want you to work. You're going to have to pay for daycare. If you're lucky enough to have a job all during the week, uh, during school hours, then you can just rely on public schools to take care of your kids during the day. But... If you have to work on the weekend, you have to pay for daycare. And that's another expense that a Roman wouldn't have because a Roman's wife would probably be at home taking care of the kids. 
so I forgot uh, part of the how prosperous were the Romans thing. <laughs> I don't know how I forgot about this because it's so fucking good. One more passage that I'm going to read. Uh, the author says, The reason that these comparisons are possible is because many researchers are studying real wages around the world in a systemic way. One of the grand questions in modern economic history is why Europe pulled ahead of the rest of the world. And that question cannot be answered until we know when the great divergence happened. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a thing that he wrote. <laughs> um, have you tried reading regular history instead of just econ history? That might give you some clues, maybe. Maybe it was uh, the period where Europeans got into boats and uh, did genocide and slavery to everyone and uh, stole all their shit. I think that's probably when and why Europe pulled ahead of the rest of the world. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah, so th this is his motivation for comparing, to, for finding out how prosperous the Romans were, is to maybe prove that the Romans were also ahead of everyone else, and so therefore the Great Divergence happened in the year 300 and not the year 1400 when the Europeans got into boats and killed everyone and enslaved them and stole their shit I don't know not sure not sure what it could be anyway I didn't really read the entire paper because once I got to the methodology I thought it wasn't very good so I didn't care to read it but if you want to I'm gonna have the link in the notes and you can read the thing yourself. One last thing I will say about it that I think is funny <laughs> is the title of the PDF version of this is Corel Office Document. So he was using Corel Office to write this paper. <laughs> Probably a boomer. Oh, you know what? I will, I will talk about one more thing. One thing that's absent from the edict is rent. And for that price, Alan did something a little strange. He said that according to budget studies, which there is no citation, so it's impossible to know what studies he's talking about, rent was only 5% of the Roman budget which I find pretty hard to believe. And I'll, I'll get into rent in the next section. But so he, he basically assumes that rent is 5% of the budget. So he takes all of the Romans' expenses and just multiplies it by 1.05 to include rent. Literally, that's what he says in here. Multiplied by three to scale it up to a family. <laughs> Great. Cool. Not, not, not very good. Not very good to me. Okay. Um, so the next thing I have is about rent in ancient Rome. And this is a paper that is called The Rental Market in Early Imperial Rome in the Journal of Roman Studies by Bruce Woodward Fryer. Fryer with an E. And it's from 1977. This one is actually pretty interesting, I have to say. Uh, it talks quite a lot about the rental market. It uses historical data, which is always good. I like actual data instead of just, like, making bullshit up. <laughs> That's good to me. So, uh, one thing I didn't mention was Rome was a city, a walled city, of one million people. That's the estimated population. So that's quite a huge city, uh, especially for that time. What's another city that's got a million people in it today? That was actually harder than I thought. A lot of the cities that you think of as big in the U.S. actually have under a million population. So the closest one to a million is San Jose, California. And then Dallas is 1.3 million. Um, Austin is... 978,000. I thought... First, I thought... Memphis, Tennessee. 
that has only like 600,000. Columbus, Ohio, 898,000. So that one's pretty close, actually. That's, that's the closest one that I thought of. Detroit only has 600,000. Chicago only has... Oh, Chicago has 2 million. 2.6 million. So that's actually a lot more. Nashville, 670,000. Atlanta, 500,000. Kansas City, 495,000. Omaha, 478,000. So, um, Portland, 650,000. So a lot of these cities that we think of as big are actually quite a bit smaller than than Rome was. And they have the advantage of not only being much more sprawling, but also modern building techniques <laughs> and, and stuff like that. So uh, Rome was a walled city, so space was even more at a premium than it is in a modern city. It couldn't really expand that much. So the main types of living quarters in Rome were apartments, and the buildings were called insula. Basically, they had like a main corridor at the front of the building, and then rooms branching off of that. And some of them were like bedrooms, and some of them were sitting rooms. And oh, synaculum—that's that's what they were called. the The bedrooms were called synacula. So that w- that would have been like a nice, like a real apartment that you know in New York City today would be like two thousand dollars or whatever. A lot of urban Romans. According to a footnote in this this article, uh, possibly up to 95% of them did not live in rented units, but either slept in the back of the shops they worked in, so there was a back room with a bed there, or they slept in the streets. So even like among the Roman poor, most of them most probably did not rent rooms. And, you know, like today, the insula, the apartment buildings, were almost entirely owned by one person for a given building, and they just collected rent on the, on the different rooms. So renters had a lease with their landlord, much like today. They weren't exactly the same as today, but it was a legal agreement to rent for a certain time period. It set conditions on living there and the amount that you pay. The main difference is like people were like sometimes years behind on their rent. So the landlord wasn't always getting paid, but because the people weren't getting kicked out, it's thought that they expected to get the rent eventually. And it was just that, you know, they didn't have money coming in yet. But so, landlords would also sublet. So, they could, like, lease rooms and then divide it up and and sublet it. And, um, landlords made a lot of money. They were said to make 20 to 33% annual profits on leasing rooms in Insula. But again... Some people were years behind on their lease, so on their rent, rather. So, like, it wasn't necessarily a guaranteed source of income, but it was a good source of income. And all you need for that is to already be wealthy. So, this article talks about some figures on rents. So, the cheapest recorded rents were for, quote, extremely unpleasant quarters... And they started at one ass per night. And and an ass uh, is a very funny term uh, for a Roman coin that is worth uh, one-tenth to one-sixteenth of a denarius. It was, like, revalued at one point. So I I used a one-tenth figure for most of this. For a decent place, rent was closer to 500 sestarius a year. And uh, one sestarius is two and a half asses. And rent for a synaculum 
which was the nice place, was at least 2,000 sestarius per year. Um, so in terms of denarius, the extremely unpleasant quarters would be about three denarius per month. The decent place would be six, six and a half denarius per month. And the nice place would be about 42 denarius per month. So quite a wide range of figures there. And so I didn't think of this while I was writing the notes, but let's go back to the <laughs> conversion of denarius to gold, right? Let's just, let's just bang out these figures real quick. So uh, one denarius, according to modern gold prices, is about 40 cents. So <laughs> according to this, rent, rent would have been $1.20 per month for the extremely unpleasant quarters. Two sixty per month for the decent quarters, and sixteen eighty a month for the Sennaculum. If that doesn't highlight how fucked up that method is of converting prices, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, just completely insane. I kind of wish I had I had done the figure four. Uh, grams of silver too, but I don't. I don't really want to do that now. But yeah, I think you can see safely there that that shit makes no sense. Okay, the last thing I'm going to talk about is the effects of the edict. So, like I said in the beginning, economists love to cite the edict as an example of how bad it is to do price controls how foolish and naive it is to try and institute price controls because it'll just destroy the economy and not even do what it wants to do because it'll cause inflation which is of course when money becomes less valuable the, the measure of value you know becomes less valuable yeah so economists love to say that the edict caused all these terrible things to happen they rarely go into specifics and even more rarely do they cite any sources about it. But out of all the papers that I read, only one of them really cited anything close to a source. And that was the Edict of Diocletian, a study of price fixing in the Roman Empire uh, from the Canadian Journal of Economics and Political Science from 1947 by H. Mitchell. Or M- Mikkel. Might be Mikkel because it's Canadian. Um, so here's just an example of how they talk about the effects of the edict. The pound weight of gold was fixed as being worth 50,000 bronze denarii. They, all these guys talk about this. Um, this all comes from Tenny Frank. Um, but anyway... In the open market, it was worth a good deal more, and no one was going to sell gold at the mint rate when a handsome profit could be made by dealing in the open or, quote, black market. The denarius was not worth what it officially tariffed at in gold, and the whole structure of the newly reformed monetary system was in danger of breaking down in a confusion as bad as any that had gone before. So, no citations there. No according to blank not even what we'll hear in a minute, which is according to a contemporary writer, which is not really a citation, but it's at least like an attempt (laughs) to say that you have evidence for your claim. It, It just says that this is what happened. Let's suppose that you set the price of gold to 50,000 denarii and you live on a desert Island and you're trading with, Gilligan and Skipper, and Skipper decides to sell his gold for uh, 60,000 denarius, because you can't enforce your law against Skipper, because it's unenforceable. Therefore, that's what happened in Rome. Seems to be the kind of thing that they're they're doing. Because they don't have any citations. So, may as well just assume the most ridiculous thing possible. The citation may be Frank Tenney, or sorry, Tenny Frank, because 
they said in a previous paragraph to that that according to Tenny Frank, blah, 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 and then a bunch of other shit, and then that. But there's no footnote or parenthetical. So even though they mentioned, they name-dropped Tenny Frank, there's no way to know what they were reading, what page it was on, what chapter it was in, what year, none of that shit. In fact, when they refocus on the thing they were just talking about in that paragraph, like a few paragraphs later, it seems like they're literally just guessing. So they said, the most important item in the whole edict is that which values a pound of gold at 50,000 denarii. This item is the key to the whole revaluation of the currency that had been brought into effect some five years earlier. The bronze unit of denomination, the so-called Valentinianus, had been grossly overvalued at 25,000 to the pound of gold. The new coin, the Folis, was tariffed at exactly double that amount. And this is where it gets crazy. The, quote, black market price for gold must have been considerably more than 25,000 Valentiani per pound, and it is permissible to suppose that the new Folis was put at the free market rate. So their, their source is uh, they t- re-tariffed the coin, and so it must have been because that's what the black market was doing. That's it. And so Tenny Frank is, is cited by all of these people. And it leads me to believe that basically everything that we supposedly know about the edict was just something that Tenny Frank said in 1923 and has never been questioned since then. Never been analyzed or proven or criticized or any of that. And so here's, here's an excerpt from Tenny Frank on the edict. He says, But what was extremely unwise was to assume that the very same prices could hold permanently in all cities alike throughout a vast portion of the empire, and that the retail price must be the same as the wholesale price. The attempt, of course, failed, although the emperor decreed that the penalty for disobedience should be death. A contemporary writer records that businessmen closed shop, that many articles of commerce disappeared, and that food riots at once resulted, naturally. I'm going to give you one guess on whether or not he said who this writer was, or put a footnote, or quoted a passage about the, about this supposed contemporary writer that says that businessmen closed shop, and articles of commerce disappeared, and that food riots resulted. Have you guessed? Uh, the answer is no, he did not. <laughs> Naturally. I looked at both of his books on ancient Rome. He wrote one called An Economic History of Rome in 1920, and one called A History of Rome in 1923. That was from A History of Rome, and it was from chapter... It was from one of the last chapters in the book. Um, it's available on a college website um, in HTML form, fortunately, because that makes it much easier to copy. Although that might mean that there is a footnote that I can't see that is in the original text uh, that just wasn't copied to the HTML version, because sometimes that kind of stuff doesn't make it. That's the, that's the one advantage of PDF is that the original book is actually in there. But I looked on Libgen, couldn't find the book. I found an economic history of Rome, but I couldn't find a history of Rome. Oh, it's chapter chapter 30, I think, because that's what I have in the URL. Yeah. Chapter XXX. Chapter, chapter porno. Um, that's where he writes about Diocletian. And, yeah. I did some brief looking into the food riot thing couldn't spend a whole lot of time because I had to start recording but I tried to search for food riots 4th century Rome and could not find anything take this with a lot of salt because it's from Quora but the source on there said that there are food riots in like uh, the, the 3rd century AD and the 5th century AD but there were none listed in the 4th century AD So if there were immediate food riots, 
their definition of immediate might be a little different from mine. And yeah, I wonder who this mystery writer is that records the businessmen clothes shop. I wonder who it could be. I wonder if it's uh, Tenny Frank himself. Uh, I don't know. But, yeah, that's all I have. I think it points to a lot of problems with economics and economic history. Um, economists simply love assuming their theory is true and then basing their conclusions about reality on that theory uh, without ever testing it or backing it up with data or observations. And they love repeating what each other say ad infinitum to the point that that becomes un- unassailable knowledge <laughs> and you find out that they're all just repeating what one guy said in 1923 and nobody has ever verified it or anything like that. And, uh, yeah, they, I I guess I didn't really get too into it, but the whole comparing baskets of consumption based on wages thing is really projecting our world into the past in a way that does not fit and I, I'll, I'll give credit to the person who explained to me that Rome operated on a patronage system it's uh, I really wish I knew how to pronounce your name man but it's I-T-M-E-C-H-R-3 the ice must be abolished guy and um, yeah just absurd comparison of today where most people are wage workers to Rome where most people were working through a patronage system oh another thing I didn't really uh, get into because I didn't write any notes on it was uh, there was a lot of supposedly again I don't know the evidence for this but it was in a book, so it's probably true. There was a lot of like street vendors in Rome who were like food hawkers. So the people that were buying food uh, were usually buying hot meals from street vendors. And um, that is evidently a way that a lot of people worked in the city rather than becoming slaves not sure why they would make this choice but uh, rather than becoming slaves or soldiers or pledging homage to a lord uh, they would cook food and serve it in the streets of Rome and so yeah that's another reason that using wages as the basis for comparison wouldn't really make a lot of sense because A lot of people aren't getting paid in wages. They're getting paid in revenue from their street food hawking business. So I think that's all I have. I hope you enjoyed this. I sort of have plans for what to talk about next. I found an article by Noah Smith uh, where... He critiques degrowth without reading anything about it. So I'm probably going to talk about that soon. That should be fun, because that guy's a dumbass. He blocked me on Twitter, like, years ago. And his opinions suck. And so that should be fun. I also am planning, like I mentioned, an episode on Golden Kamui. Because the third season is coming out, I think, next week, actually. It's a very cool anime that features uh, an Ainu main character and talks a lot about Ainu culture. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Ainu culture and Golden Kamui and the fact that most states went through periods of ethnic cleansing and that settler state and all other types of state 
not exactly a distinct separation between the two. It's kind of a matter of degree rather than like categories of state. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.